You're getting some bake sale goods, giving your offering, any of that good stuff. Make your way in as soon as you can. But right now, everybody say it with me. It's time to start. All right. We're talking about overcoming power. That's what we've been talking about the last few weeks. And uh, this morning, we're going to talk about the mind of Christ. No power has been given to man that has the ability to transform us like the gospel. The gospel can take the weak and make them strong, can take the dysfunctional and make them functional, can take the hopeless and make them hopeful. There's no power given under heaven. There's no power in the time and space that's ever been given that's like the gospel. Through the blood of Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, upon the foundation of his word, nothing has the ability to change you. Self-help isn't going to change you. Dr. Phil will give you some practical advice, but Dr. Phil's not going to transform you. Only the gospel transforms us. And the gospel is designed to be participated in. We're not to look at it. The kingdom doesn't work for a lot of Christians because we watch it and we don't activate into it. You have to step into the kingdom. You have to activate yourself into the kingdom in order for the kingdom of God to begin to function in your life. And we think that Jesus is going to do it for us. We just stand there and watch him. We think all of our life's going to be done. I'm saved. Now Jesus is going to do everything for me. Who told you that? The kingdom is participatory. We have to activate into the kingdom. We have to step in and be obedient and walk into things that he's told us to do. And, we have to, and if we want the things that he's told us we could have, then we have to do the things that he's told us that accompany that. My, our, the mind of Christ is, is available to the Christian. There's two versions of the mind of Christ. There's the practical mind of Christ, and there's the spiritual component to the mind of Christ. Everything Jesus does has a, has a dimension in two worlds, his world and ours. His world is the superior reality. We live in an inferior reality. That's why Jesus says on earth as it is in heaven, because it's from his world into ours. That's where the power flows. It doesn't flow from our world into his. It flows from his world into ours. And the mind of, th the mind of Christ is necessary for the Christian. Mankind's thinking is influenced by what? Sin. Can I get a witness? Right? Stinking thinking, selfishness, secularization, which is the way the culture thinks. The carnal mind is the selfish mind. The Bible says the mind that is set upon self, the carnal mind, is the enemy of God. The Bible tells us in Romans 12 to renew our minds. Why? Because we have a, we have a mind that is not to be conformed to the culture, to the present world system. The world that we live in isn't a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's a system of thought. This world, when Jesus says you're in it, but you're not of it, he's not talking about a physical place. He's talking about a mindset. He's talking about a way of thinking. The culture thinks differently than the kingdom. Anybody understand that? God's ways are not our ways, neither are his thoughts. His, our thoughts. As his heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways above our ways and his thoughts above our thoughts. His thinking is a little different than ours. His ways are a little different than ours. As a Christian, you are not part of this culture. You are part of the kingdom culture. And you, come on, I got one. That's all I need. That's all I need. I see one witness. Two or more, we're good. <laughs> the kingdom culture is completely different than this culture. The thinking of that world is completely different. This world thinks in terms of limitations. 
God does not think in terms of limitations. This world, God thinks in terms of expectations and impossibilities. This world thinks in terms of possibilities. This world is self-seeking. God's world is serving, serving for, at the expense of self. It's a totally different world. Isaiah 40 says this, who's now in the mind of the Lord? That was a question the prophets had because they didn't have the Holy Spirit. And when they had the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit went. The Holy Spirit came, the Holy Spirit went. They were dependent upon the visitation of the Holy Spirit. We have Holy Spirit in habitation. He is with you always, even to the end of the age. He's aware. He's there. You just got to flip the switch. He's right there with you. You just have to activate into him. He doesn't leave you. He's with you. So Paul answers this question in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, who's known the mind of the Lord that we may instruct him? Nobody can instruct the Lord, but who's, he's, he's quoting Isaiah. And he says, we have the mind of Christ. So what does that mean? We can know how God thinks. And we can know how he thinks practically, which is where the church is. If the church is anywhere, they're in the practical mind of Christ. But there's an entirely different component available to us, and it's the supernatural mind of Christ. But we can't ever get, to, if we can't get to the practical, if we can't run with the footmen, how are we ever going to contend with the horses? Right? If we can't play peewee football, how are we ever going to step up? I mean, pick your, pick your game, <laughs> whatever your game is. We have an ability to think and direct our lives along a different course. We're not of this world. We think differently. A lot of times the kingdom doesn't activate into the people's lives and the promises are not active in the people's lives because their thinking is out of order. We think stupid, stinking thinking, dumb thinking. We think as the world does, not as the kingdom does. It's just the way it is. But we have, what I want to talk to you this morning about is the ability to direct yourself from the thinking of heaven's, of, of heaven's mind, of God's mind, how he thinks and what he sees. The mind of Christ gives you the ability to know exactly who you are. Did you know that? Mankind is created as a what? You're born with the question, what, inside of you. That's why people live their lives in confusions and they're always driving to answer these questions. What am I? What does it all mean? Who am I? Where, where are we going? There's a, a man was created as a question. And so there's this question always going on in our mind. Most people have no clue who they are. I don't know if you're aware of that. They have no clue. Most people don't have any idea who they are. They, they, they walk and live by who people have said they are who their culture has said they are, who their upbringing has said they are, who their family has said they are, who their experiences have said they are. They identify with things that are uh, like football teams and things like that. Well, I'm a Dolphin fan. Or they identify their life in light of the job or the occupation that they have or the position that they hold in this world. And they don't see themselves reflected as God sees them. Their thinking is out of order. You say, I'm a mother. No, you're a daughter of heaven who, who is a mother. That's what you are first and foremost. I'm a businessman. No, you're a son of the highest who operates in business. That identity precedes all other identities. All other identities must circumvent themselves to that one or there is no power. There's no power. It's the way it is. You're a son of the highest. Whatever you do, that's what you are first, and then that's what you do. I'm a lawyer. No, you're a son of the highest who stands in the position of a lawyer. And your law firm or activity subjects itself to that identity as a son of the highest. I'm a husband. No, you're a son of the highest who is married to this woman. And so your identity of a husband subjects itself and draws its power from that identity. That's how, this game, that's how the game's played. 
That's why there's such dysfunction within the body of Christ, and there's so such dysfunction within the church and the lives of the believers. Jesus is not withholding his kingdom from anybody. The kingdom is now. The kingdom is present. The kingdom is active. The power is now. But the, but it, but the only thing that we, we're the biggest problem, and it comes through the renewing of our minds. And we think we're being egotistical because we call ourselves sons and daughters. Who do you think you are? I'm a son of the highest. What's your ringtone? What's your text message thing, Matt? What is it? Son of the highest. When Matt gets a text message, he's gotten the message. Because I tell you every week, you're sons and daughters. He says, every time, I get a, every time I get a text message, it goes, you're a son of the highest. You're a son of the highest. You're a son of the highest. So send Matt a text right now, and he's going to be told he's the son of the highest. You're a son of the highest. Jesus knew exactly who he was. He was not confused. Secularization in the way that we portray Jesus is Jesus just discovered who he was. He had no doubt who he was. He was not one time confused about who he was. He didn't kind of just kind of walk in and just self-discovery and self-actualization and go, hey, I must be the Messiah. There was no confusion with him. He knew who he was. Jesus said, here you have it. He tells you exactly who he is. I am what? The bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. I am the son of God. I am the gate. You na name it. He knew who he was. He never was confused. He didn't have an actualization of his identity. He knew it from the very beginning. If you don't define who you were, people will define it for you. Heaven defines you. You are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. You're son to those who receive Jesus, you give the power to be sons and daughters of God. We're not, the, the, the world is not the family of God. I hate to tell you this. We have this, oh, we're all children of God. To who told you that? The Bible doesn't tell you we're all children of God. It doesn't. It doesn't. They're all God's creation, but only those who receive Christ are sons and daughters, period. And the bread belongs to the children. You are, you are favored, and you have access to his world and to his kingdom that your, com your, your, your co-workers do not if they don't know Christ. You have access to things that the normal Christian can't get because they're ignorant of how to get it. Ignorant. Ignorant. They're saved. They're born again. I didn't say they were stupid. They're just ignorant. A lot of bad teaching. A lot of bad teaching. If you do not define who you were, others will define it for you. And what you end up doing is living a life by fake identities. Well, your mom tells you, well, you always were a smart little child, or well, you always were a little stupid, and you live your life in light of an identity or a label that somebody has put upon you, a school teacher, an employer, or even you live, in, you live your life in light of the identity of the things that you have experienced in your life. None of that is true. The truth is who Jesus says you are, and that's what we have to begin to think that way. Think that way. When Philippians says, let this mind be in you, in the Greek it means pounded in. I'm going to quote that verse. The mind of Christ has to be pounded in. It doesn't come naturally to you. You do not naturally think along heaven's lines. It just doesn't. Your, your inclination is to think carnal. That's a natural car inclination. And, you know, say discipline is the lowest form of discipleship, 100%. And you have to discipline yourself into thinking Ultimately, we, we operate according to another level, but if you can't do anything, you need to discipline yourself. That's the lowest form of discipleship. People think we discipline ourselves, we've achieved anything. You've not achieved anything. You've entered grammar school. That's where you are. If all you're doing is disciplining yourself, you're in grammar school. 
Now, I'm not telling you not to discipline yourself, but my motivation is not out of discipline. My motivation is out of relationship. My motivation is about who he is and who I am. Everything I do is in light of that, not because he told me to. When I don't want to, of course, I do it because he told me to. That's the lowest form, but the highest form is to operate out of identity. I give not because he told me to. I give because I'm a son of my father, and it brings him honor, and I support his work in his house, and it is my honor to give. I give out of honor. I don't give out of obedience. We need to be obedient givers. Yeah? You're in grade school. Your calling as a Christian is to be an extravagant giver. But we can't even get the Christian to obedience. 10% is obedient, Christian. We don't have to give. I know you don't have to give. You don't have to show up either. You don't have to receive God's promises. It's all under grace. Because God is measuring you by the heart, where your heart is. He wants to know. He wants people who love him willingly from the heart. And if you have to discipline yourself to love him, that's okay. Because one plus one equals two. If you'll do that, God will bring you into calculus. He'll bring you into, and he'll get you past remedial math. But most Christians don't. We just don't do it. We don't think we have to give. We don't have to give. Who told you that? Jesus never rescinded the tithe. I hate to tell you that. He changed it but he never rescinded it. It's not a commandment, but it's expected. Oh, I don't know about that, Pastor. You know, it's all right. The Bible literally tells you, if you don't want your money, you keep your money. Keep your money because you don't understand honor. So I've been quoting the last, two, last few weeks, Mark 7, 18. Are you still dull? There are believers who've walked with God for 10 years, and they don't think they have to tithe. Jesus, they were walking with Jesus less than two, and Jesus looked at them, and he goes, are you still so stupid that you don't understand this? Are you still so dull that you don't get this? A basic principle, and you can't get it? It's all through the Bible. Jesus is correcting all of those who would inquire of him and are expected to know. Nicodemus, are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know this? He looks at his disciples, are you still dull? Then he tells him in another place, have you been with me this long and you still don't know me? You still don't understand me, having been around me this long? Some of you, the best thing you can do is go home and give yourself some high karates and tell yourself to wake up and stop playing this stuff and start living it. Stop playing the gospel and live the gospel. Stop making yourself look good for everybody else, which is pretense, we don't really practice it here at this church, but a lot of church, it's all about pretense, all about how good you look on Sunday morning. Bless God, brother. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. That's how we are. Your life's a train wreck, but man, you are holiness on Sunday morning. <laughs> it's true. You live by a fake identity because you don't understand sonship. You don't understand daughtership. It is my honor to show up today. It's my honor. Pastors complain. I don't hear me complain, and if I complain, my complaint goes up. I have the greatest job in all the world. God has called me faithful by calling me into the ministry, Paul says. It's an honor. It's a tremendous burden, absolutely, but tremendous reward, and I am accountable for everything I say and do. I can teach you religion, but my father has not told me to teach you religion. He's told me to teach you honor. He's told me to teach you access. He's told me to teach you promises. He's called, told me to call you beyond where you are, and to become who he has created you to be. That's the message. Not to, be, to teach you to be a part of this world and just hold on until Jesus comes, but to look and expect and run towards the life that yet lies beyond, to live in this world towards that one. 
That's what he calls us to. If you don't live, if you don't define yourself, you'll live by fake IDs, and you'll always try to be someone you're not. Always try to be someone you're not. The buying of Christ defines our, not only who we are, defines our purpose. And again, this all comes from Jesus. You know, he said, I know where I came from. <laughs> so this isn't a mystery to me. I know I've come down from heaven. Jesus discovered himself. You watch the, the Discovery Channel about Jesus, and it's like he's walking through a fog. Who am I? Who am I? I don't know who I am. He's having an identity crisis. And then suddenly he realized he was Messiah, but he still had questions. He still doubted all the way through. It's not in the Bible, man, but yet that's how we portray it on TV. Jesus in an identity crisis. He says, I know where I have come from. I'm not fuzzy. I'm not confused. I know. I know where I'm going. And then what does he say? The Bible gives you your purpose. Gives you your purpose. Christian, you know where you're going. Eternity belongs to you. That's right. And what you do in this life will echo in that world. This life is a rehearsal for the next one. Your life will be measured, not in light of salvation, but your life will be measured in light of servitude and obedience into the things that he has called you to do. We will be measured. We will stand in account, not judgment unto salvation. But we will be judged for our time, our talent, our energy, our focus, how we lived our life. Did we live self-centered as carnal believers or did we live kingdom-centered? We, we will be held account. Our, our works will be weighed. They will be measured. Say, so will I be saved? Of course you'll be saved, but by smoke. You guys hear me say it? Corinthians, woo. Your butt's going to be on fire. You're going to be coming through. Some of you already see the reward gate. You'll be standing there watching other people come through and you'll be going like, whoo. Smoking. But by, but by fire. Ooh, I just made it. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> I must proclaim the kingdom of God to other cities because this is the purpose he's come from. Jesus says his purpose. His purpose is our purpose. Jesus is the divine prototype. Jesus is the prototype of the new creation. We are born away from the last Adam and born into, or the first Adam and born into the last Adam. He is the prototype. He is the model by which we follow. And we are to be about our Father's business, and we are to proclaim the kingdom to where we, into all the places that we are sent. Proclaim means with claiming. You go forth and claim the kingdom. Claim it. We go and lay hold of what he has told us we could have. We go and bring his kingdom into the dimensions of the world where which we find ourselves. You say, what's that look like? Well, that's another conversation. This is just the concept. We are about our Father's business. I've had pastors say, Pastor Kevin, you know, the church is not a business. you got to understand that. Said, We're an organism. We're not an organization. We're not a business. And when I was a young believer, I would be like, what the heck, Lord? And the Lord goes, uh, it's your Father's business, so it is a business. Christians think stupid sometimes. We run our churches based upon stupid principles. And Jesus said the sons of the, the, sons of the world are wiser than the sons of light. And we, we think just because we apply wisdom and business principles within the church, we're secularizing the church. Oh, my gosh. There's far worse things to secularize the church. There, there are things that work because the businesses have tapped into an eternal principle. That's the only way, that, it's the only reason why they work. Commerce exists because Jesus allows it to exist. 
Understand that? Buying and selling and trading, it's just an idea. Our purpose to be mirrored through Jesus. How do, we, how do we know our purpose? Intimacy with the Holy Spirit, knowing where we are going. Your first purpose begins to understand is through identity, sonship. You begin to ask the questions. Here's, here's how we are. We, we, are we, we are learners, disciples, learners under discipline, but we want everybody to give us all the answers. Some answers are for you to discover. And we are lazy. Lazy, 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 lazy. We don't want to do the work. You know why? Because to discover your purpose, you have to wrestle. You have to wrestle internally. You have to wrestle spiritually with what you don't know. And you have to wrestle internally, and you have to wrestle spiritually with what you've got to get rid of. The Holy Spirit will begin to guide you, and, we, and sometimes the answer to the question takes two years. Two years for you to get a relative answer to the question. And I'm talking about the deep questions. Your purpose. Who am I? What do I want? What does it mean to be a son? Well, we just guess. We're making it up. No, truly, Lord, what does it mean for me to be a son before you? What is it that you're asking me? What do you want from me? As a son, what does that look like before you? As a son, what does that look like in this world? As a son, what does that look like in my family? As a son, what does it look like? What does that mean? And then when you begin to understand that, you begin to orient yourself around that mindset. I started this church. I tell you, it took me two years to figure out what a church was. People go, you that stupid? No, because I'm not. I, I, what, what, okay. If we were a business, let's play business, right? Let's say, okay, let's say Max is a manufacturer, and let's say uh, Ray is a manufacturer, and, we're, and I'm a manufacturer, and we're all supposed to produce toasters, okay? So we're making toasters. But all of us are not able to produce a toaster. Ray's toaster works on half. You know, Max's works only on, on eight or seven. My toaster doesn't work at all. And what we are called to produce, we are not producing. What should we look at? Should we just go, well, you just need to accept what it is, brother. You know, or you need to accept it. We need to buy, well, I like a toaster that will work on eight. Or, I, you know, I'll buy the toaster that only works halfway. You know what? I think I'm going to buy the toaster that doesn't work at all. If you're a manufacturer, you back up and look at your processes. And you understand what is wrong. We're called to produce a product. And the church needs to open its eyes and realize that the product that we, Jesus, our King, our Father in heaven, and the Holy Spirit has commanded us to produce, we're not producing it. We're not. But we act like we are. And we all celebrate our own, our own half failures. Well, bless God. Ray's got one that works halfway. Hallelujah. Max has got one that works on eight. Pastor Kevin, we're praying for you. Praying for you, going to get your toaster up and running someday soon. This is how we operate. This is the thinking. For me, when I go into the church, I'm looking at it not from the context of a half toaster, a toaster that works on eight. I don't know how a toaster works. I can make it up. I can emulate everybody else around me, and we could be a bunch of dancing monkeys, or I can actually go to the one who is building the church. Jesus said, I'm building the church. You want to know what Jesus is doing? He's building the church. That's the only thing he's building. What's he doing in time and space? Building the church. No other statement that he says he's actively working in building anything other than the ecclesia. And there you have to understand what does church mean? What does church mean? It took me two years. Two years. And half the time was to get rid of the thinking that I'd already been programmed into thinking. I had to get rid of 
all of the stupid stuff that was already in my mind. And I had to give myself permission to get rid of the stupidity. And I had to give myself permission to step outside of the box and to accept the ridicule of those who everybody wants everybody to stay in the box. They want everybody, the barrel of crabs, pull everybody down, pull everybody. Well, you can't believe God for that promise. You can't, well, you can't believe God for, I'm going to have a million dollar business. Praise God. Praise God. You should have a million dollar business. What makes you think you should have a million dollar business? Well, you're just going to have to wait for Jesus. Jesus is going to give you a million dollar business. Who told you that? You have to participate in it. Ecclesia, ecclesia. It's mean, we say it's an assembly. It's not an assembly. Again, this is how the church thinks. I'm going to tell you exactly what a church is. I'll give you two years of research that cost me sweat and cost me blood. And it's going to seem real simple to you, but it took me a long time to get to this place. And there's very few that actually understand what I'm about to tell you. Very few. Say, what's a church? Well, a church is a bunch of people who come around and serve God and just worship God and change their community. That's what they do. We're, we're an assembly. That's what the word, what's the word ecclesia mean? It means an assembly. That's what it means. And they might even go further. They might even see, they may actually get a little deeper into the definition. An ecclesia is an assembly of called out ones. You have to look at the context. Jesus could have used, the Bible could have used any word he wanted. The word for assembly is the Hebrew word synagogue. Yet they did not, or the, the Greek word synagogue. Yet, the Bible doesn't use the word synagogue, where we all just gather. That's what synagogue means, a gathering. He uses ecclesia. And the root word of ecclesia is to protest. That's what it means. It is a city within a city. The Greeks, so they drew, Paul drew from the Greeks. When the, when the Greek society became uh, unjust, unrighteous, they became oppressive. There would be citizens within the Greek structure that would call for an ecclesia. And those would assemble into an ecclesia and they would form a city within a city. And instead of injustice, they would be a people of justice. Instead of greed, they would be a people of generosity. They formed a city within a city. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what the word ecclesia means. It's not an assembly where we all get around and look at fish tanks, have vibrating chairs, and complain about how cold the air is. That's not an ecclesia. It's a gathering of spirit-empowered world changers that are in conflict and contrast to the world around them. Not greed, generosity. Not selfishness, servitude. Not, uh, not dishonor, but honor. Not injustice, but justice. That's what it's about. And that's what ecclesia means. That's our purpose. The mind of Christ will teach you your purpose. We're to live in and from God's presence. The presence of God is everything. The mind of Christ comes, is, is aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm not aware. The Father is always with me. He never, it never, never once entered his mind. He was never not once oh, not aware of this presence of the Spirit of God around him. He was not once ever aware of, not unaware of that. He didn't go, wait a second, I don't know where I am. Where am I supposed to go? What am I supposed to do? He was never confused. Never confused. And he would go and get instructions. He was aware of the Spirit of God around him, and he would activate the Spirit of God wherever he was. Half the stuff that you see is Jesus operating in the Holy Spirit. People say, Jesus did that because he's God. No. 
He laid aside his de- he laid aside the attributes of his deity, took on humanity. Still God, yet not functioning and the attributes of God operating solely through the Holy Spirit. Solely. Everything he did was through the power of the Holy Spirit. The divine prototype. He was living in and from God's presence. This is the mind of Christ. What does that mean? It means you got to have alone time every now and then, Christian. you got to get alone with the Lord. You need to pray. And praying is not just asking. Praying is listening. And I would challenge you to listen twice as much as you speak. Begin to hear the Lord. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. Did he not? Begin to learn to hear him. What are you saying? What are you doing? I was just meeting with a business guy up in um, Orlando. And he was talking to me about a bunch of stuff. And I said, listen, the question isn't for you to ask God, to, for you to tell God what you want with your business. I said, what if you flipped that and began to ask the Lord what he wants to do? What if you asked him, Lord, what do you want to do here? This is what I'm thinking, but what are you thinking? This is what I'm saying, but what are you saying? Rather than you coming up with all your structure, your strategy, your ideas, and saying, God, I want you to bless this. What if you asked him to do, what, to, do it for, to do it? What if you asked him to show you? And what it is is it's, an inter- it's a flipping communion with the Lord. You ask him, he asks you. You ask him, he asks you. God will ask you questions. He'll ask you what you want through relationship and through communion. People don't understand that either. But it's not always, Lord, I need this. Lord, I need this. Lord, what do you want? Lord, what are you doing? What are you saying? Living in and from the presence of God. It's, a, it's an aloneness. It's, it's learning to practice the presence, learning to be before him, learning to understand, learning to hear him. Then it's being aware. Just gift of discernment, we all talk about that, right? We all talk about the gift of discernment. People think the gift of discernment is driving down Miami Beach and going, homosexuality, alcoholism, you know, calling out the obvious. Oh, I got the gift of discernment. <laughs> it doesn't take a genius to find dirt in a gold mine. That's, you're not a genius, to call out the obvious. Awareness, environmental awareness, being aware of the Holy Spirit. You're in a place, Lord, what do you want to do here? Lord, you're bringing me these clients. Is there, any relate, is there anything you want me to do with these people? You're presenting. Most people are so dull, they don't even understand what stands in front of them. Jesus said you discern the sky, but you can't discern your visitation. You have barometric monitors on your phone, and you can tell when it's going to rain, but you can't discern the Spirit of God when he's with you, around you, or trying to activate through you in an environment, or trying to give you wisdom. You can't discern. Sometimes we have to discern when we're in the wrong environment or when there's something going on here that's out of kilter, and we have to learn to take authority over that environment. We have to learn to activate the kingdom into that environment. That's discernment. Living in and from the presence of God. Jesus said, I'm not alone. The Father's with me. Jesus slipped away alone so he could be prayed. Jesus practiced the presence. If he practiced the presence, then we need to practice the presence. The mind of Christ to be reflected in how we speak. Ouch. Ouch. How we talk. You mean I'm actually supposed to think before I say something? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Let every person be Quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Jesus said, I don't speak what I want to. Rest assured, I'm sure there was a lot of things Jesus wanted to say, but he didn't say. When they looked at him and said, we know who our father is, you bastard. That's what they were insinuating. We know where we're going. When they said to him, you have a demon, you don't think he had a few things he wanted to say back at that? 
I'm sure he did. Why? Because he was human. As God, he was in human form. He was subject. The Bible said subject to the same emotions you are, yet without sin. God in the flesh. God as we are. Humbling himself and submitting himself into an earthly habitation for the suffering of death and for the payment of sin. God humbled himself and submitted himself, the divine one, the eternal one. He submitted himself into a temporal form in order for the suffering of death and for the atonement of sin. In all ways tempted as we are yet without sin. So you can rest assured Jesus was tempted to say a few things. (laughs) Write a few letters and send a few emails. Make a few Facebook posts. Yeah, I'll show them. Let the Holy Spirit will give you the words to say in the moment that you need them. The Bible says, let no corrupt communication come out of your mouth, but only what is good and just, that it may give grace to the hearer. Right? Put a watch over your mouth, right? Bite your tongue. James said, the Proverbs says, the one who can control their mouth is greater than the one who takes a city. You think taking a city is powerful. The Bible says, well, the one who can keep their mouth, they're greater than the one that can take a city. And it says the tongue sets the world on fire in negative and in positive ways. It's interesting. In the book of Acts, Holy Spirit appeared as what? Right. Cloven tongues of fire. Yeah. That's tongues of fire upon the head. And he did what? Spoke through tongues. It's the redemption of our words, the redemption of the way that we speak. It's not easy. (laughs) Not easy. We act like we never say anything wrong. We do. Oh, here's, here's my favorite one. I love this one. This is Christianity. This is the Christian dumb. I'm just speaking the truth in love, brother. That's all I'm telling you. I'm telling you this, but I'm only telling you this out of love. Well, if you speak the truth in love, love is for the highest good of the hearer. Love is not for your own self-justification. So love is to seek the highest good. So if you're really speaking truth to someone, I'm saying this because I genuinely love you. I'm saying this because this is what's going to help you. I'm saying this because this is what's going to benefit you. That's speaking the truth in love. Any other form of that is not speaking the truth in love. It's speaking the truth in self-righteousness or in self-justification or speaking the truth in, in condemnation. Everybody wants to say something to you. I have a rule. If you don't love me, you don't get to tell me anything. I'm, I'm serious. I'll hear you, but I'm not going to regard what you say probably more than the 30 seconds it took you to say it. If you want to say something to me, and then I must know that you genuinely are interested in my best good, or I have no time for you. I have no interest in hearing your words. It's not an issue of serving. I have no time for you, but I have no interest in hearing what you have to say. It's true. Ministers, you'd be shocked how many people want to tell the minister what time it is. I got a few things I want to say to you, Pastor. I told you about the guy on Facebook. He said, your church needs to take up an offering so you can buy a suit. That's what he said. <laughs> That's what he told me. I said, why is that? And he goes, you'll look more, you'll look more, um, uh, you'll look more biblical. You'll look more represent, rep- representative. He said, you look like you come off a camping trip. I set him back. I said, well, maybe I should wear robes and sandals, and then I'll really look biblical. <laughs> It's not an issue. You know, you try to dress your best. You're not trying to offend anyone. What you're trying to do is you're trying to identify with people. That's the point. We are as. We know, know the audience. That's the first word of public speaking. 
Know who you're speaking to. In the church, we try to posture above the people and speak down to them. Jesus never did that, and it's actually not biblical. Uh, Moses was drawn from among, and Jesus was raised up from among. He was with and identified. The people identified with him. The religiously elite, the Armani-wearing, you know, Rolex-wearing Pharisees weren't all, they, they didn't like him at all. They didn't like him at all. But the, the common people did. Why? Because he identified. He understood the audience. Jesus was worthy of robes, people. He was worthy of Shekinah glory around him at all times. The highest of honor was his. But he chose humility. Why? To communicate to you and to me. That's why. And if the way that we dress or the way that we speak dissent, differentiate or sets distance between us and the people, then there's a problem. As one old boy said, you got to put the cookies on the low shelf. you got to put it down where people can reach it, and you have to make a common bond. I have people all the time, you know, oh, look at you. Come in. I get the religious people to come in. Usually if they come for a while and they're wearing a suit and they stick around, they won't be wearing a suit very long. Had a lot of them come in with suits. And by week three, they're in flip-flops and shorts. You know what I mean? <laughs> because they get it. It's, it's, that's, that's the motive behind that. Removes the power of other people's opinions. A lot of times we think in terms of other people. Some of you, if you don't please people, you just freak out. You can't control it. Jesus said, the only person I'm trying to please is the one who sent me. The only opinion that matters is Jesus's. That's the only one. That's it. Nobody else's opinion matters. It doesn't matter what people think. It matters what he does. He loves you on your worst day. Your worst day. So what does it matter? He loves you even when you don't love you. He's for you when you're against you doesn't matter. Paul says it's a small thing that I'm judged by you, for I don't even judge myself. The one who judges me is righteous. The one who judges me, this his judgment. My judgment of myself, my assessment of myself, good or bad, is, no, is nothing, is not really even what I'm measuring myself by. And we certainly can't measure ourselves by the opinions of people. Luke says you can't serve two masters. He's referencing money, but it's the same thing. You can't serve what, God, who, what the Lord sees and then try to mold yourself into what people want. If Jesus is okay with you, you need to be okay with you. It's true, right? It's true. And it starts there. But if Jesus is calling you higher, then you need to start moving higher. And if everybody else is telling you to stay down where, every, where, where everybody else is, but the Lord is saying go forward, then that's where you need to go. That's the world that we live from. We live from him. His approval is all that matters. Whose approval are you dependent upon for your happiness? Ouch. Ouch. I feel bad. You know, that person wasn't happy that I didn't drive two hours to pick them up and bring them. Well, you did the best you could. You know, you, you do the best you could and you, you can, and you leave it, you leave it at that. That's, that's pretty much it. You can't be slave to other people's opinions. Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew what was in man's heart, the Bible says. People are fickle. They change with the weather, don't they? Right? Reveals the futility of human thinking. The mind of Christ reveals the futility of human thinking. When you access the mind of Christ and you begin to think, you all of a sudden realize, I am thinking at an incredibly low level. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than that of men. What is foolish to God is stronger than the highest wisdom that we could possibly bring forth. The Bible actually takes the foolish things to confound the wise. That's why the intellectuals are, have a hard time with the gospel, because it's foolishness. God came down, 
born of a virgin. Oh, that makes sense. That makes, that makes, that's perfectly rational, right? Was born of a virgin. He conceived himself. Oh, okay. Then he lived 33 years sinlessly. He's God, right? Then he allows himself. God lets himself be murdered he, because he's God. So he, therefore, he lets him. He took on weakness, right? Then he rose from the dead. He willed his death and then was raised again and then ascended into heaven. And if I give my heart to that and give my life to that, I'll be saved. That makes perfect sense. That is perfectly rational. <laughs> to the Greek, the gospel is foolishness. The Greek is the intellectual mind, the intellectual way of thinking. To the Jews, it's an offense. But to the Greek, it's offensive because it breaks their traditions. God broke with their traditions, and so it offends them. To the Greek, it, it breaks with their intellect. The gospel breaks with the intellectual mind. That's why the poor in spirit, you have to, you have to come as a child. You have to know nothing. That's why we get born again. As a child, people go, I want to know. You're not going to know. You have to believe. Right? I'll see it when I, I'll believe it when I see it. No. You have to believe it and then you'll see it. The kingdom's inverted. It's not this world. That's it. Well, I can't put my faith in nothing. Well, you're not. Christianity is the, only, is the only faith that empowers its belief. We have the Holy Spirit. You get born again, reality comes to you. If you're born again, the Spirit of God comes into you. This isn't something fake or phony. The, 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 his kingdom and his world manifests to you. He validates his truth to those who put their faith in it. And the first step is being born again. The Spirit of God comes into you, and you're just like, what in the world? He's validating that this is true. Reveals the futility of human thinking. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. If you, need, if, you need, if you need wisdom, ask the Lord. Some of you in the atmospheres of worship, you need to take and you, need, you get into the Spirit, begin to honor God and begin to step into the Spirit and begin to let the wisdom of God begin to tell you. Begin to let the wisdom of God speak to you. I tell you the story all the time. I will put my request before the Lord. And when I was a younger Christian, I would always pray. I would ask him, I'd come to worship service. I would be in the worship service in the atmosphere that I was in. And the Lord would begin to speak to me according to the things that I had asked him for. And I used to carry a pen and a paper in my back pocket. Because I knew I was going to forget it by the time I went out the door. And so I'd be writing it down. Taking notes while the songs were being sung. Because the Lord was speaking to me out of his mind in the atmosphere of the spirit according to the things that I had asked him for. That's how he is. By getting in the spirit, you can access through his wisdom. God will give you wisdom in the moment. He'll give you analog wisdom, but he'll also give you digital wisdom. He'll give you wisdom at another level. And wisdom at another level is what we have that the unbeliever doesn't. The spirit-filled believer, all believers have it, but the spirit-filled ones are the ones that are supposed to be activated in this stuff. So the spirit-filled believer has access to a power that, that, that the, the nominal Christian doesn't, right? And not because it's not theirs by inheritance. It's because their paradigms and their thinking keep them from it. To be spirit-filled is to be welcoming and, and understanding and willing to enter into the realm of the spirit, into the realm of what is known but also what is unknown. That's what it means to be spirit-filled. It means you're, you're not just bi biblically founded, but you understand, welcome, love the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's not just crazy Uncle Steve that we put in the corner. You know what I mean? He's crazy. Oh, don't, don't mention the Holy Spirit. He might, he might, crazy Uncle Steve might start doing something around here, you know? That's not the Holy Spirit. 
Holy Spirit is, is the one who gives us, and he is the gate into that world. He is the one who brings that to us and gives us access to it. And spiritual believers, we're supposed to understand this. You need wisdom, get into spirit, Christian. Get a spirit. Wisdom, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do, Lord? What do you want me to do? I've gone to pray for people in the hospital. I have no clue. One of the greatest stories I've like, Lord, I've got to go pray for this girl. She was in the hospital for 11 days. Neve, 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 her name was heaven spelled backwards. I didn't even know this. Somebody's here and they're like, oh, this girl, her daughter's been in a hospital for uh, 11 days with this fever, or nine days with this fever. I was like, what? And they're like, would you go pray for her? I'm like, yeah, I'll go pray for her. So I get in the van and I'm going to go. It's when I had a van. Doom, doom. Yeah, remember that? Back in the day. And so I, I, I was driving there. I didn't know what I was going to do. I'm like, Lord, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to go about it? What do you want me to do? Because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to not go in there and recite the story. Recite the five verses, pray over the person, anoint them with oil, and declare the prayer of faith that raises up the sick. I'm a little more intimate than that. If that's what he tells me to do, then that's what I'm going to do. But I believe God has a word in that moment and in that season for that situation. I believe God understands what's going on. And so I ask him, what do you want me to do? And I don't hear anything. I go there. I go to the bathroom. I'm washing my hands. And as soon as I, was, as soon as I got in the hospital, I still had no clue. When I, got to the, when I got there and I started washing my hands to go in and pray for the girl, um, I, I be, the Lord just began to tell me what to do. This is how I want you to pray. This is what I want you to do. This is the way I want you to go about it. You know, exactly. Minister to the mother first. Bring comfort to the mother first. Encourage the mother first. Testify. I gave a testimony of someone else. And then, I, then I went through what everything that God did. And I felt like it was a Thursday, and I felt like the Lord said she's going home on Saturday. I saw her mother, or her, her aunt was here. She said the fever broke Friday night. The, woman's, the girl's been in the hospital for nine days. They have her on the highest dose of Motrin that they can possibly give her, right? And I could tell you more about the story, which I won't for the sake of time. But I felt like Saturday, and I said, when were they going to release her? She said they wanted to release her Saturday, but they, they wanted to keep her for more observation, so they kept her for two days because she had two long more days. Because, um, But I said her, everything was good by Saturday, and she said, yeah, I didn't tell the mom that. The Lord says Saturday. But I felt like the Lord said to me, Saturday. And so I just kind of held that in my heart, and that's why when the, when the aunt was talking to me, I asked her, and it was just as the Lord said. All right. And it was out of intimacy. The prayer comes, you know, but you listen to the Lord. The, the mind of Christ tells us to forgive. You get in the spirit, you, don't, you can forgive people, can't you? Right? Ladies, you want to kill that man of yours. Divorce isn't an option, but murder is on the table. <laughs> you get in the spirit, and you're like, it's not so bad. Everything's good. Yeah, I love him. <laughs> you bring them to church. That's what you want to do. You want, you know. But the, the the mind of Christ gives us the ability to forgive people. There's two things, right? This is important because a lot of Christians do condemnation. I know I'm just chatting here. There's say this with me. There's cognitive forgiveness, and there's emotional restoration. There are two different things. What the Lord expects is cognitive forgiveness. He expects you to willingly forgive the person. The trip and the problem is, is that people cognitively forgive, but the emotional damage is still there. Can I get a witness? Anybody? And so what happens is the devil begins to lie to the person and tell them you haven't really forgiven. Because if you forgive him, then these feelings wouldn't still be there. And so then the person's like, oh, Lord, take these feelings away, take these feelings away, take these feelings away. And the feelings are still there because that requires inner healing. 
the, emotional, the emotions have been traumatized. The, the, the conscience has been violated, and there's trauma at the level of the emotion. God does not expect forgiveness from that level. He expects his people to forgive cognitively, and that's what's accepted in heaven. What ends up happening is the inner healing has to take place, and then it neutralizes the emotions that are attached to that offense. That's how it works. That's why people can forgive. I forgive that person last week, and then you hear their name on Tuesday, and you're just like, oh. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> Ready. And then you're like, what's wrong with me? I can't forgive. Christians struggle with forgiveness all the time, and they don't understand that it's two components, particularly when you've been, a, when you've been wounded. The wounded soul, does, it has to be healed. That's just the reality. And so forgiveness is rooted in understanding. You can't forgive people, even cognitively, and particularly you can't release them emotionally until you have understanding. That's the foundation of forgiveness. If you understand that they did that because they were broken, you can forgive. If you understand that they did that because they were messed up or that they had issues with their own life or that they are just a, you know, they're just really going through something, they're manifest, whatever, whatever, whatever they're doing, forgiveness always has to come out of a place of understanding. That's how forgiveness truly operates. If you understand that the person is just and that person's a sinner, no matter what they say, but they're dysfunctional, let's play that one, that this person's dysfunctional, and they do these stupid things to me all the time because they're dysfunctional, you can understand that and you can forgive it. It doesn't take the wound away. That's what you have to understand. The church is ignorant on inner healing. We're dull as doornails. We give verses and just tell people to go home and recite the verses. Well, if that worked, we'd all be healed, wouldn't we? It doesn't work. It doesn't work. How do you know? Because I've had to do it. I've had offenses and wounds in my heart that wouldn't go no matter how many verses I cited. You just get in the spirit, you just change the channel. It doesn't work like that either. How about I'm completely free? How about being free of that all the time? How would that work? Is that available? 100% that's available. 100% that's available. The blood is bought atonement in all spheres, spirit, emotion, and body. It's blood bought. And if Jesus paid his blood bought for it, then I want to understand how to get it. That's why you need emotional healing. You need inner healing. It's not complicated, but it has to be understood or it doesn't go away. So stop. some of you need to stop beating yourself up. You were wounded. You were damaged. That person wounded you and that person damaged you. First step of he inner healing is to acknowledge that what happened to you was true and that your emotion is true. That's step one because most of us deny it. You have to acknowledge that these emotions are real and that somebody has wounded me. And that I'm feeling this way. That's one of the processes of inner healing. One more on that. Come tonight. Come this afternoon. Teaches us to serve others. Jesus said, I didn't come to serve, but to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. And in Philippians down here, it says, let this mind. So here's the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ is servitude, people. We don't serve them out of, this is important. We don't serve them. I don't serve out of a diminished state. I'm not serving as a doormat so that people can come and just wipe their feet on me. I don't serve that way. I serve out of sonship. I serve the weaker out of royalty. It is my honor. I serve. We, have, we understand royalty in the church to mean you're superior. Royalty is to come beneath. The way that royalty was in the ancient world is that the royals were the benefactors of the people. They were the ones who took care of the people, not to lord over them, such the Gentiles do. That's not what we do. Jesus could lord over us easily. 
He doesn't lord over you. He always, 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 even to this day, to this hour, serves you. Serves you. He comes beneath you to lift you. Is he king right now? Is he serving us from a diminished state? Or is he serving us out of his kingship? He's serving us out of his kingship. He doesn't diminish himself to serve you. He serves serves you out of his identity. We serve out of our royalty. We're royals. We serve out of the abundant identity that we have and the abundant resources that we have in the spirit. I serve out of royalty, out of divine sonship. I don't, I'm just a servant. We're just little mice, you know. We're the off-scouring of the earth. Well, sheep are killed all the way day long. I get it. It, Servitude is not valued in this world, but that does not circumvent or that does not undermine the truth of identity. You're still royal, whether the world understands it or not. You're still royal. Heaven sees you as royal. Royal what? Priesthood. What do priests do? You hear me say it all the time. From us to the Lord, from the Lord, from us to him, from him to us, and then from us to the world. That's what it means. So we're honoring God, and then the honor from God returns to us, and then we take the honor that God has bestowed upon us, and we bring it to others. That's priesthood. Unto him, from him, and unto others. And we are royal priests. Teaches us to serve others. It submits to the will of the Father. I've not come down from heaven to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. Hello, can I get a witness? Last slide. The mind of Christ is not trying to seek its own. We don't use Jesus as a bellhop. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. You know, it's not the Burger King drive through window. You know, that's not, that's not the kingdom either. Seek first the kingdom and what is right to him, and everything will be given to you. The desires of your heart are there because God has put them there. There are those, we get a lot of entrepreneurs here. We get a lot of people that are professionals in a lot of things, and they have aspirations, and those aspirations are just. But when those aspirations are placed into the heart of the kingdom, only then will those aspirations be realized and actualized. And I'll share it right here. So we have to, and how does that work? It works by seeing everything from an eternal perspective. The mind of Christ sees everything from eternity or towards eternity. Since then you've been raised up with Christ, set your hearts upon things above. Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Ephesians says we're seated with him. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. We see towards the eternal. We live through the material towards the eternal. Everything we do is to have the eternal in mind. This is the idea. There must be an eternal value, okay? People go, I want to get married, right? Say this with me. I'm going to give you guys a secret, and you're going to learn this, and this is going to be a rhythm. Say this with me. Grace is in the eye of the Lord. Grace is spiritual power moving in love. If you want spiritual power moving in love, you have to look where the Lord is looking. You have to see what he's looking at. You want marriage? Why do you want marriage? Well, I just don't want to be alone. Okay. (laughs) What if you said, I want to be married because two are better than one? I want to be married because through that we can reflect, we can reflect the Lord better. Through, that, through marriage we can produce godly offspring. Through marriage we can reflect God's heart, God's faithfulness, God's commitment, God's patience, God's kindness. What about that? that that's marriage with an eternal value. That's not marriage from a selfish perspective. That's marriage with an eternal value. I want to have a business. Why? Because I want to make money. I don't want to work for people. Okay. 
How about you say, I want a business because I want to fuel and fund the kingdom. Deuteronomy 8.18, because I believe that God has given me an ability to obtain wealth that I might establish his covenant in the land. So my ability to obtain wealth is directly related to my willingness to establish his covenant. You want your business to succeed? You need to fund the kingdom. Why? Because you're a Christian and you're symbiotically bound to it. That's Deuteronomy 8.18. You have the ability to get wealth. We freak out. Oh, we shouldn't be talking about wealth, Pastor. Is this a prosperity gospel? 100% it's a prosperity gospel. 100%. In every way. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life. It's not prosperity as the church has spoken of it in the 90s. They got a revelation and they went down the wrong road. They, I would hear it all the time. God has given you the ability to obtain wealth. Deuteronomy 8.18. Yeah, but they didn't quote the second half of it. We all have the ability to obtain wealth to establish his covenant in the land. Your wealth creation is directly related to that. It's, it's symbiotic. You're bound to it. You have a desire for business because God has created you as a fueler and a funder of the kingdom. That's why you want it. You don't want it because you want it. You want it because he's made you to have it. Jesus doesn't have any problem with money. He has, he has a problem when he can't get it through. There's lots of people who have money. Most dynamic works in the world have been funded by very, very wealthy people. Very wealthy. The Jews would tithe to the letter. Read it in Matthew. Jesus said you tithe to the exact penny of everything that you give. He said this you should continue doing. He never rescinded it. He maintained the tithe. The tithe is right. But you shouldn't neglect the weightier matters. Why did the Jews tie to the penny? Because Jesus told us these Pharisees, not the Jewish people, it was the religious leader, they understood that this stuff works. And so they understood. They wanted it. They wanted this. So they made sure that they did everything perfectly because they knew that this worked. They knew that the power was associated with that. Less than 18% of the church ties, people. You think these great works are funded by but a handful of people, by but a handful. People go, I want to be that person. Start where you are. I always tell the person, you can't tithe at 50,000. You're not tithing at 500. If you can't give it 50 grand, you will not give it 500. You will not. I've met many wealthy people. Business is my background. Business is my mindset. I'm incredibly comfortable around business people. I love them. I get how they think. I understand where they're going. Entrepreneurs, I get it. I'm in the pocket. I'm in the lane. But what I've seen among the believer is that they fail to understand. They raise it, and then they lower their giving. It's proportional giving across the board. It's not, well, I gave 10% when I made 50000 and I'm only going to give 3% when I'm making 500000 No, it's proportional giving across the board. Because we're all called to equally give. Whether you make $20 or $200,000, we all give in proportion to our income. It's equality of giving. Equality of giving. That's why God established that. Say, I want a job. Why? So that through my, your job, so that if I have this better job or if I have this increase, then I can reflect Jesus better through my workplace or through my job. Those are right reasons. Those are thinking and seeing things from a heavenly perspective. I want a mortgage. I want a house. Well, the earth's not our home, cab pastor. We should live in a tent and live on the street just like Jesus did. Yeah, how you doing with that? Anyway, I want a mortgage. Why? So that it will stabilize my life, so that I can have some stability within my household, and from that stability, I can serve God more, so that I can put myself in a place where I can manage my income better through that stability, and from that stability, I can serve God more. Now you're asking according to heaven's heart, and now you're asking with an eternal value. 
two versions of the mind of Christ. There's the analog and the digital. Most Christians, if they're doing any of this, they're in the analog. Discipline. Reading the word and disciplining themselves. They read the word, they discipline themselves, and they practice it. There's nothing wrong with that. I want to be clear. There's nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. But I would tell you there's a higher power, and it's through the Holy Spirit. So digital and analog. You can have analog, which presents itself in very practical ways. And then you have the digital, which shows you things in supernatural ways. Things too wonderful for you. Eyes have not seen, ears have not heard. Study the words of Jesus. You want to start hearing the mind of God. You want to start getting in the mind of the Lord. Study the words of Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit for illumination. Take time to read your Bible. It's true. Holy Spirit has a, has a language. It's called Scripture. You don't have an excuse. You have it on your phone. You version and Bible Gateway. Download the app. You can listen to it on the audio. Bluetooth it on your stereo in your car. You can put a Bible program in you in you version, and it will literally tell you what verse to read. It'll pop it up on your screen. So if you're reading the book of Ephesians in six days or in seven days, it'll go Ephesians one on Monday, and the, and all you got to do is look at your phone. It does all the work for you. It does everything except read it to you. <laughs> and if you wanted to read it to you, you just put the you just put it on audio and it'll read it to you. We don't have any excuse. We and this generation, people died to get the Bible. That was part of what the Reformation was all about. People were murdered, burned at the stake, and killed. For what reason? So that common people could have the word. And we in this generation, we don't have any excuse. We, don't have, we need to be literate, biblically literate. Biblically literate, Christian. And you need to start today. And ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Read it. He said, I don't understand it. I don't understand the Bible. I had a pastor tell me, it's your job to read it. It's his job to bring the illumination. And he will always bring the illumination. Maybe not in that moment, but you'll be here and I'll quote Matthew and you'll go, wow, that's what that means. Or you'll be driving down the road and the Holy Spirit will show you something and you go, oh, that's what that means. Or you'll actually ask him, Lord, what does this mean? And he'll relate it to you at some point in this journey. He's going to show it to you. It's how it works. It's a living faith. And then enter into the power that's associated with the mind of Christ. Amen? All right, we're going to pray. We're going to close with prayer. And we have a prayer team available to you at the end of service over here. So if you need prayer, that will be available to you. People will be praying for you. Father, we just thank you. You are so good. Lord, you don't leave us as we are, God. You, you give us an ability to become something more than what we are. You, you, you allow us to come into a world into your world and to see and to understand. You, you give us an ability to rise, Lord, to rise above the level of the common and to become exceptional. Father, we're just so grateful for that. If you only saved us, it would have been enough. But you go so far beyond that. And Lord, may we not neglect what you have made available to us. May we not settle for ordinary when we have been called to be extraordinary. We just honor you for that. Let me bless you. May the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine down upon you. May the Lord be faithful and give you grace. May he give you peace and may you forever abide within his favor. In Jesus' name.
Amen. God loves you. We love you. Have a great week. Prayer team's available. Ministry school this afternoon. You're all welcome to come. We're going to, well, those of you who have been coming. Anyway, have a great day. Oh, don't forget the bake sale. Bake sale. Calorie-free Sunday. Munchies on the way out. <laughs>